It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Miss the show, no worries on point. And on the podcast, everyone's kind of chuckling over that ship blocking the Suez Canal. Well, it's all funny until it starts hitting our pocketbooks and we start running out of goods that we won't be able to get because the supply chain runs dry. Why China is targeting Nike and Adidas for comments they made last year about where they source their materials from in the Xinjiang region and what you can do to start pushing back. And we'll talk about, you know, the NHL and all these pro athletes get all the benefits and a different set of rules during COVID. Well, why can't we get millions of kids back onto something as simple as the soccer field? Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. We do not have enough vaccines from the federal government, and it's uh, it's a joke. Fifty fifth in the world. I've, I've done. Sorry. I've, I'm. You know, this is frustrating as anything. Freedom from this hell only comes with vaccines, and yet we're running out. But yes, that was the premier today finally admitting, I think, what has been obvious and that we are vaccine losers. And I, uh, I wondered how long it would take for this political bromance to break up. And I guess today Premier Ford uh, quit the Trudeau government and finally uh, places the well-deserved blame for their colossal vaccine screw up. And, you know, Trudeau's talked a really good game. You know, these amazing vaccine portfolios he's got. But I mean, look, it's not great if it's not arriving. And we're at the point now where we've got 700 pharmacies across the province running out and hundreds of thousands of people who have all signed up and are ready to go. And, and next week, there's what, nothing? There's going to be a, a point next week that, and actually there is right now, that pharmacies have run out. Shoppers Drug Mart, as the general just told me, um, they have 100,000 appointments. Like the feds need to, you know, I've, I've been very diplomatic and I've been very complimentary and collaborative with the federal government. Enough's enough. This is becoming a joke. We need more vaccines. Simple as that. And, and we've shown uh, the people of Ontario, we have the capacity, we have the infrastructure. There's uh, 82, 83,000 people vaccinated yesterday. We have hundreds of thousands of people waiting in line. And at the end of the day, they, they've dropped the ball, major league. You know, Trudeau had one job, like one job. You know, the province has done the brunt of the heavy lifting on delivering COVID services, and, and they've taken the brunt of criticism. All Trudeau had to do was secure vaccines. And he didn't, because we know by now, I mean, he put his money and trust into China, and China unshockingly screwed us. And... They've been able to buy themselves time, you know, torquing up numbers and getting enough into the country to sprinkle it around. But the reality is all we get is a few vaccines here and a few there. What we don't get is a steady flow of numbers that are actually coming into the country. What we get is like 
numbers and dates and we're getting this next week and getting this next week and this tomorrow and then, you know, oh, we're going to cancel that. It's just like a blur. It becomes a blur. I don't think people pay attention anymore. But the proof is in one number, and that is 4 million shots have been delivered to this country. That's, that's not 4 million Canadians vaccinated. It means 4 million Canadians have gotten one shot. That is dismal. It is embarrassing. We are ranked 55th in the world. Just 10% of the population has been vaccinated. And that's why you see politicians toying with the delaying of second shots. And I think that's probably about to come to an end, and it should. Because not only this week do we see the top scientists in this country warn we should not be doing this, and that, of course, follows a number of scientists who wrote to the politicians to say stop playing with delivery of doses. But this morning a Canadian study came out concluding, shock of all shocks, delaying shots puts our most elderly at risk. So if you wonder why there is a growing hesitancy, maybe politicians should stop playing with people's lives, period. And we're supposed to, we're supposed to, we get all these grand headlines. Ooh, we're going to get 3 million doses next week. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Because every week we get these grand headlines and then it's like dot, 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 oh, but then there's a delay. And so, yeah, we're supposed to get 3 million doses. Now we hear you're, there's another delay of 600,000 Moderna doses. I mean, every day it's another hiccup. So who knows what's coming? Who knows when? We just get numbers and delivery dates that just don't add up. And that's why the premier was pretty frustrated today. Because now that we rely on everyone else to produce what we failed to do ourselves, all we can do is beg and borrow table scraps from everybody around the world. And that's why we don't have a stable or reliable flow. That's why when you go in to get your first vaccine, they say, great, you got your shot. And then you walk out and you get a text and say, oh, by the way, your next shot will be four months, not 21 days. It's just a big game. It's a big political game. And Dr. Tam and all these experts, I mean, they've, what they've made clear, certainly through the messaging this week, is we're in a race against the variants and vaccines are the only answer. And then Doug Ford comes out today and basically admits we're not going to beat it, which means for the rest of us, we live with these never-ending restrictions for who knows how long. And maybe that's why the Prime Minister didn't come out of his cottage today. I mean, normally we hear from the Prime Minister on Friday. He's always got this good news about vaccines. It has not been a good week for the Prime Minister, though. He's got, of course, uh, vaccine screw-ups. There's that nagging sexual misconduct scandal, which maybe at this point we should give it a name. I mean... Operation Military Sexy Times. I don't know. There's got to be a, a name for this thing. And then, of course, yesterday's scathing Auditor General report, which declared what we have long known, and that is the Trudeau government dropped the ball at the outset of this pandemic. And, and then that became the running theme. And not just for the Trudeau government. That blame goes to all levels of government. It's just like, how flat-footed can we be? And who can run the slowest? I know, I can run backwards. I mean, and that's just kind of feels like how they've done it. It's like they've not heeded any warnings. They've not, you know, gotten ahead of this game. It's just catch up and make bad decisions. It's just rinse, recycle, repeat. 
it's like what's that movie uh ground it's like groundhog day from hell i mean we did get some kind of good news today but kind of you know it's always got a little precursor apparently we'll be able to get our hair and our nails done maybe a tattoo in the toronto gta area by april 12th but then you know these doctors are coming out today predicting doom one is just saying right out disaster i'll play you his comments in a little bit but we get the provinces loosening restrictions and then dangling the threat of more shutdowns if cases go up. I don't know how businesses are expected to prepare to open if they now face shutdown again, possibly. I mean, there's the mixed messaging is so, is so profound. I mean, it's just no wonder people are so burned out, not to mention uh, checking out, you know. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. Oh, it's funny until it starts hitting your pocketbook and this container ship lodged and blocking the Suez Canal. You know, it's the subject of a lot of memes and a lot of jokes, but there's nothing funny about the ramifications this is going to have on us because this is a 20,000 ton ship. It's going to take at least another week to move it and it's costing us 450 million bucks an hour, $10 billion a day. So why do we care? Well, this is one of the most important passages for the world to get supplies and keep global supply chains moving. There had already been delays because of COVID-19, and now there are between two to 400 container ships that are now anchored behind this vessel. They can't move goods to the world, and we're talking everything from oil to all the stuff that we need on Amazon. So what happens when there's a shortage of supply? Prices go up. John Keel, President and Managing Principal at Chantella. He's an expert in supply chain. Did I sum that up uh, succinctly? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Alex. Okay, conversation's over. Uh, I, I kid, you know, a lot of people are having a lot of fun with this thing. You know, they're trying to move it with, uh, I mean, the backhoe is just laughable. It's, they're not going to move it an inch with that thing. But the longer this goes on, I mean, how, how long can it go on before we start to really feel it? Well, it, it is a significant blow to, you know, an already struggling global supply chain post-COVID. And, you know, some people are saying right now that it's sending ripples through the through global trade, but it's actually not sending ripples to every single you know hour that it goes on. It's sending shockwaves right. to the global supply chain, as you pointed out, over 400 million uh, an hour. But the problem is, is even worse when you look at the problems that we've had over the last uh, five or six months. The um, the bottlenecks that are at major ports, let's say from you know Los Angeles and Long Beach, they have five month long backlogs, and because of those backlogs, you know you have to get containers off the ships, and then you have to reload them again. So there's actually a shortage of containers. So we have some problems. Okay, and so you know people kind of think, well, how's it going to affect me? Um, what is the the stuff that Canada? I know this has a huge effect on, on Europe and that, but how much of, of what comes through there does Canada rely on? Are we talking all the goods that we get from China that supply things like the dollar store? Uh, I certainly know that oil is a factor. Yeah, there, there, well, there's massive volume. You know, the, the biggest trade route is uh, from China into uh, L.A. And, uh, and Long Beach. So there will be some residual effect uh, there for, for Canada. But we have a secondary problem in Canada because the Port of Montreal is pending another strike. They've been on... Uh, you know, a, a hold position for about seven months. And if that strike goes ahead, Canada yeah. will, will suffer significantly. 
All right. I mean, everyone, you know, if ever we wanted a pipeline, it would probably be right now because it's when we see things like the uh, oil um, jammed up that we start to pay at the pumps. And it's, uh, you know, it starts to kind of add up um, over time. And you think, well, gee, if only we could get our own oil to market. But it, all sorts of things go through there. There's iron ore, wheat, um, um, oil, as, as I said. There's a lot that goes through there. Uh, how long do you think this shutdown is going to last? Do they have they said? Well, right now, based on uh, I've been monitoring it, even live uh, satellite pictures, it could take uh, a week or, or longer. So th- that, that is quite significant. And the, the other problem it causes, not only the, the fluctuations in, in prices that we're experiencing, like 2 to 3% on, on fuels, uh, we'll have shortages of products. Canada is now suffering from a shortage of running shoes because they can't get containers to get them into Canada. So little things yeah. like that. But then after the surge, you know, somebody said it's like opening uh, the, the, the ketchup bottle uh, all at once and everything coming out. So the major ports are going to be struggling because all of these ships will, will try to get into ports. There's going to be no room for them. It's, it's, you know, it's a very delicate process. And if the timing is out, it causes a lot of problems. The other issue, Alex, is that the ships have got everything in them, including you know, PPE, medical devices, mm-hmm. even live, mm-hmm. live animals. And, uh, oh, and, yeah. And that, that's a problem. That's, that's a significant problem. Well, it is a problem because when they put on uh, the livestock and that, they, they put it with a specific feeding schedule and, and they're kept under the, the, in the hull at certain temperatures. And the longer they're there, the more they suffer. Yeah. So this is a classic example of what we talked about before, the cascading consequences of, of system failures. And, and I know I, I'm 100% sure, not 99, but 100% sure that this has been predicted as part of a risk when you have uh, ships that are this uh, long and this tall. And you're going through a region that has uh, fluctuating weather patterns with, you know, the, the uh, stand storms and, and high winds. This was predicted. But the issue here is that right. nobody nobody actually executed on this, and it's it's actually it's quite embarrassing for uh, for a lot of people that uh, that this occurred. So, given that, that this is such a major throughway for so much of the global supply chain, and, and there are other avenues, but it would take a lot longer. Why have they not duplicated and made for another passage in all this time? Well, it was only in 2015 that uh, uh, that Egypt invested about eight billion dollars in widening the the canal to mm-hmm. to uh, reduce some of the issues that they had previously. Uh, but the stretch where the ship is stuck right now wasn't one of those areas. So even with that major investment, um, they still left some risk in the system, and it, it's it's embarrassing to be honest. It's very very embarrassing. And so what is the greatest then shortage threat to Canada other than running shoes? Um, I think we're, we're, going to, we're going to feel it right across the board. Everything, literally everything we buy that comes out of China, and it's, that's, that's quite significant. So across all of the consumer goods, uh, electrical, uh, furniture, um, all of auto those parts. products, auto parts for sure, um, all of those will, uh, will have a knock-on effect. They may come in directly into Los Angeles or, or uh, Long, Long Beach and then be, you know, shipped up to or trucked up to, uh, to Canada. So, we, so we, will see the, we will see the impact of it for sure. All right. And if you look at the aerial uh, satellite shots, there's, uh, there's about two, two, three hundred ships moored just waiting for this ship to be moved. Is there another option to, to take uh, those shipments then and, and drop them on land and try to either, I, I don't know if it's possible, can they 
ship them by any other transportation method? Well, this is what uh, what what uh, companies are doing right now, brand, whether it be brand owners or shipping companies. So a lot of ships actually have now been rerouted already. So instead of going right. up to the Suez Canal, they're going around Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and uh, and looking at alternative means. So I'm sure that some of the uh, bigger, bigger companies will be looking for uh, cargo air, aircraft uh, to, to fly. And luckily enough, there there should be significant capacity in the airline industry right now because we have we're, yeah. we you know they sh- because of what's happening there should be significant capacity to be able to fly cargo but but that all brings all this extra cost and to go yeah. around the cape of good hope you're talking about between 300 and 500,000 dollars extra costs and 2 to 3 extra weeks Jeez, wow. And, and the other thing is, what, what, um, what's the responsibility of the, I mean, yeah, accidents happen, but that's a pretty major accident to have. And so what would be li- the liability of the uh, particular company, the, uh, the, the shipping company? Well, the liability is very complex because you have, you have insurance on the ship itself. You have insurance mm-hmm. for any damage it will cause, and it has damaged the, uh, the actual canal itself. So you have risk yeah. there. And you have, resi- you have risk and insurance for all of the carriers as well. There could be many, many companies that actually own the, um, the cargo that's on that particular ship and in the other ship. So, again, the cascading consequences of this in the insurance industry could run into the billions of dollars. Yeah, and I would think that if you've got uh, one of those ships that's waiting to get through and you've got contracts with uh, other people on delivery dates and all the rest of it, it just, it's like never ending. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah. What a mess, what a mess. All right, well, we'll stay tuned and see uh, how that operation um, unfolds, but it's a world away, but we certainly do feel it here. John, have a terrific weekend if you get one, and we'll chat again. Thank you so much. John Keogh talking about a story that people are laughing at, but again, we will feel it at some point down the line here on Point on Global News Radio. Um, not sure if you saw this headline during the week, but Chinese social media turned on H&M this week after the clothing company made a statement last year expressing concern over forced labor practices in Xinjiang and that it's not going to be sourcing clothing from the Chinese region. And now China's turned its ire onto Nike and Adidas that also said a while ago that it doesn't source material from that region. So China's retaliating by laying sanctions against European lawmakers, scholars and institutions. And it appears, you know, these companies are all kind of taking a lead that our governments should be taking in, in making sure that um, they've, they've stated their case. But these big brands are clearly also trying to get ahead of negative headlines now that the genocide of Uyghur Muslims is finally getting into the mainstream. Sarah Teach is a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, international human rights lawyer and a legal advisor to the Canadian Coalition Against Terror. Good to have you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So it's odd, you know, these comments are not new. Um, They were made quite some time ago, but China is now kind of uh, isolating and, and targeting Nike and Adidas for these comments. And it's mobilized this online attack and retaliation, I guess, hoping to silence criticism of their human rights violations. Yes, uh, that's exactly true. I think what we're seeing is, you know, it can't be uh, looked at in isolation. We also have the sanctions that were laid down on Chinese officials just recently. So I think mm. what we're seeing here is a reaction to uh, these measures that will cost uh, China money. Right. And and they are, when it comes to um, their social media, they have a, a pretty sophisticated and, and quite an aggressive um, campaign that, that they launch. 
Uh, yes, absolutely. They're, they're very good at that. Uh, so we see, we've seen that before, and I mean, uh, we'll definitely see more of that. This isn't new either. And so when they do these things, I mean, do they have like, do they have bots that they've created or do they have hundreds of thousands of people that they've hired to kind of target and zero in on these big companies? My impression is that it's a combination, uh, although I'm not an expert on their foreign influence operations uh, specifically. Uh, but yeah, my impression is that it's a combination. It's both bots and it's also individuals who are uh, uh, targeted and, and paid to engage in these sorts of operations. And um, as you mentioned, you know, Canada declared China's committing genocide, obviously, a few weeks back against the minority Muslims. Uh, we saw the Magnitsky sanctions slapped against high-level Chinese officials in connection to these camps earlier this week. So are these companies um, going to proactively try to reduce the risks, uh, you know, uh, and try to diversify supply chains? What is the objective here? I hope so. I hope they'll get out of those uh, companies that are using forced labor. And, you know, this this really isn't news. As you said, it's just really sort of entering the mainstream recently. But the Australian Strategic Policy Institute last year um, put out a report with dozens of companies whose supply chains are implicated. So this really, mm -hmm. um, th this has already been established. So it's you know, and what's interesting is the media coverage on this topic hasn't named all of the companies. It's, I've noticed that there's been silence on, you know, Apple, for example, which um, has uh, really been implicated in forced labor. I think it was one of their companies that is responsible for the lens, like the glass on top of the iPhones, either in Xinjiang or uses labor from Xinjiang. So there's tons of companies that are implicated in this. It's interesting that you say that because I do get a lot of um, comments from people who say, you know, don't buy Apple products. Is it just that Apple is so um, embedded in China and it's just such a huge money maker that that's not a that's not a relationship that they want to rock at all? Because they are one of the, you know, business leaders that could make a really big difference if they said, look, we're pulling up stakes, we won't support this. Yeah, they could make a big difference, and I hope they do. And I hope that one of the effects of, you know, this declaration that it is, in fact, a genocide and the Magnitsky sanctions that just came out, I hope all of this serves to increase pressure on these companies because, I mean, that's a huge impact when, you know, when money is involved, you, you go after the money, and that's a really great way to make a difference in what's happening. It is. But as you say, like money talks and, and there are huge implications for all of these companies if they if they lose out. And, and China, you know, can be very, very aggressive. I mean, we saw the blowback that the NBA suffered when the uh, I guess it was the Houston Rockets GM tweeted support for Hong Kong protesters. And then LeBron James weighed into, you know, the China. I mean, it was just a big mess. But we saw how aggressive uh, China got and the NBA kind of buckled and cowered. So we, we see we've seen the implications. Yes, we have. I, I think we just have to make it we have to increase public pressure so that it becomes a worse option for these companies to not move out of Xinjiang than it is for them to stay there and face the pressure from China. Why do you think it's taken so long for this particular issue um, to start becoming a mainstream conversation? We've been talking about it now on this show for for a long time, but it's just now starting to get coverage. Is it is it only because of, of recently that Canada had taken a position on genocide? or Why is it just taking so long? It's a great question. It's I really don't know. It's really an interesting phenomenon that it's, you know, even like three, four years ago, it was totally unacceptable to criticize China uh, in its internal affairs. And that's only just starting to change. And 
you know, I, I, maybe it's, it comes down to the influence that China has uh, in Canada. It's, it's a really good question. I wish I had. I don't have a, as good of an answer as your question. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the real way to punish China, I guess, um, is with their wallet. And if people actually want to take, uh, you know, if the governments aren't moving fast enough, people can take their own action and just refuse to buy products that are made um, or bought out of that particular region. It's just a matter of educating people uh, to know what to look for. Yes, exactly. Uh, I have personally told almost everyone I know that when their current MacBook uh, collapses, to not buy another Apple product unless there's been change. I, you know, peer pressure is a really powerful tool in that regard. And what is it, just on a basic level, that people can do? What are some of the products that people can push back on? Because I think people do want to do their part. They just don't know what they don't know. Right. Well, the, the companies that have been implicated by ASPI, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute report, include uh, Apple, Nike, Adidas, uh, Zara. Um, mm-hmm. I would encourage everyone to go look at that report, look at that site. There's lists. There's dozens. So I couldn't name them all just on the show with you. And also, you know, things change. So to just keep apprised as best as you can, you know, you know, perhaps next week Zara will move everything out of China. So you know, we also have to um, give these companies a chance to make things right. Right. And is there any kind of uh, campaign that you know of mobilizing to to get an education out there and to put pressure? Um, I mean, I I guess, you know, it's it's nice for the governments to be able to kind of hide behind these private entities and get them to do all the hard work. I mean, really, the governments should be taking a lead on this, but they haven't. And so I guess the private sector is going to have to be the change maker. But really, that will come when the consumers demand it. Right, definitely. And, you know, the government, there are things that the government can do here. I mean, there was a big announcement recently how they were banning uh, imports from forced labor. Um, But that was sort of a sneaky statement, because that had already been in place since July. And some mm-hmm. a proposal that's been uh, out there for the last few months uh, that I've sort of been involved with uh, tangentially is a proposal that the uh, Canadian government presumptively ban goods coming from Xinjiang, basically puts the onus on the company to prove that it doesn't involve forced labor, as opposed to right now where it's the other way around. Uh, so that would be something that's concrete that the government can do. In terms of consumer actions, there's actually a, a site that's, oh, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, something like Not Made in China or something. And you can scan like the barcode of something you buy. And it's a very comprehensive database. Hmm. Well, it's going to take action. It might take a while, but certainly there are things we can do. I mean, heck, at this point, Sarah, we could just say no to Huawei. That would actually make a difference, but our government that would be nice. That, so. That would be nice. Yes, it would. Sarah, yeah. I appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Thank you. That is Sarah Teach uh, joining us here. So if you want to make a difference and you don't think the government's doing enough, do it yourself and start educating yourself on what you buy. And if we start diversifying that and not supporting it, maybe we will make the change that the government is uh, slow to do. This is Global News Radio. If you're a rich professional athlete, hey, you can get your game on, right? But if you're a kid in Ontario... You've got to sit on the sideline. And this recent development that the NHL players get special treatment, you know, coming in out of the country shows just how backwards our pandemic policy has been from the start. You know, if you've got the money and the means, you're barely affected. Yet we've got millions of kids across this province who can't step on a sports field out of fear that they might get COVID. Yet apparently the experts are okay letting the kids get fat, lazy and depressed. Is that safer than, you know, keeping them active? 
That is why Ontario soccer is pushing back and asking, let's get kids back on the field. Johnny Misley is CEO of Ontario Soccer Association. And Johnny, your organization represents a huge number, half a million of Ontarians. And you wrote a five-page letter to Dr. Williams imploring him to get kids back on the field. And I think you speak for a lot of organizations, not to mention a lot of parents who are just looking at this saying, this does not make any sense. Yeah, we, we certainly couldn't sit idle. Um, you know, we had to take the, the power and the profile of our sport to get the attention of the leaders that um, that they need to be aware uh, that we need to get kids back on the field of play, be that on a in a gymnasium or on a, a soccer field or a cricket pitch or whatever it is. Just got to get kids active again because the hidden pandemic that no one's talking about beyond COVID-19 mm-hmm. is the physical and mental health pandemic that we're suffering right now. And lots of research and data is supporting that. Yeah, it seems the longer my son isn't doing stuff, the less he wants to do. And the last thing that we want our kids doing is being glued to screens. And that is becoming kind of this cancer. Um, You know, we've got all these major rich athletes that we push and make sure to keep them going and watch our games. And that's all fine and dandy because they should. But we've got all these kids just sitting around. And as I understand, in the last season... You guys managed to get you know a few games here and there, maybe practices, but ultimately it was so over micromanaged. I mean, what's the point? Yeah, last summer, uh, 2020 was not great. Uh, we were at 18% capacity, which translated into about 50,000 players registered out of about 350,000 players. So, needless to say. Um, because of the government orders and, and you know, uh, the sporting community respects the government orders and we follow them carefully to a T. We're a official provincial mm-hmm. sports organization uh, under the Ministry of Sport in the province of Ontario and we follow that. Um, but now we're going into a second season and we've learned so much about this pandemic and one thing we've learned is, and science supports it, that there's no evidence to say that, that kids should not be playing in outdoor sports and uh, we're an outdoor team sport and uh, the environment does not transmit um, COVID-19, and the science shows that. And so we just wanted to bring Dr. Williams, you know, bring it to attention to him in the health table that um, um, the, the research is there and the five-page letter speaks to that. But uh, probably more important above that is, is again, this is about, um, this is not about, and many parents tell us this, this is not about getting the kids back to playing soccer so they can chase those NCAA or U sports mm-hmm. scholarships. This is not about getting kids back in the pitch right now to, you know, perfect their striking skills or their passing skills or what or what have it be. It's about getting kids back active again for physical and mental health. That's the paramount in this whole thing. And I can speak, speak on behalf of all sports. We're saying the same thing. Yeah, and are you getting um, cooperation from other leagues and other sports? Are they starting to join you? Because, I mean, you look back now and I think one year with no track, no tra- cross country, no basketball, no nothing. I mean, it is, yeah. it is, it defies logic, let alone, um, you know, health uh, for these kids. There's no question that the amateur sport community and the leadership of it, um, be it volunteers or be it paid professionals, we are talking on a on a regular basis about it. Um, like anything in society, the pandemic has brought us closer together in our different industries, and the sport community is a very tight sport community, and we're all sharing mm-hmm. our frustrations and best practices behind it. And one of the topics and one of the items we addressed in the letter to Dr. Williams is um, – 
sport seems to be amateur sport I'm talking about seems to be some sort of an oversight because mm-hmm. we're only allowed, for example, in the red color framework to have 10 participants on the field. Now, who is going to go and rent a field, soccer yeah. field, and have only 10 participants on the field where you can have you know, 50, 60, 70, 100, 100, 200 kids in a schoolyard running around at mm-hmm. recess, masked or unmasked, or as it was last weekend when I was down at one of the um, um, one of the uh, parks and there's a skate park nearby that was mm-hmm. the size of a soccer field. There might have been 150 kids on skateboards um, going everywhere. Now, that's great they're being active, but the point is having 10 kids on a soccer field hasn't been thought through, and that'd be the same for you know, 10 participants on a cricket pitch or, or a basketball court or whatnot. And have you had any um, feedback from uh, the province? I had hoped that the premier would be asked about this today. He was not asked about it. But uh, have you had any feedback? Because it sounds like, you know, we're going into possibly yet another lockdown, which I think, you know, there's not a lot of buy-in for this at this point because parents like myself are starting to see the destruction it's doing to kids. Um, uh, bottom line, um, you know, do you even think you're going to have a season this year? Yeah, since we um, we sent the letter off to Dr. Williams yesterday morning, late morning, um, I do know in the health table um, press conference later that afternoon that a member of the media, uh, and God bless yeah. him, um, brought up the question uh, directly to Dr. Williams, and his response was that they are looking at it and reviewing it with some further information to come. So it's nice to see it's been acknowledged there. There's also a member of parliament that's also speaking at it as well in in parliament regarding the concern for kids and their mental health and wellness as well. So I think that there's a movement going and certainly the power of social media, um, it's going, it's just going crazy right now. Anybody just can Google this and go online. You'll see it's really has got a lot of um, traction right now. And, and again, this is, it's our sport, but we're using our sport to speak on behalf of all sport. And I've had a lot of my colleagues yeah. in different sports send me notes over the last 24 hours saying, good for you, and we're going to do the same. So we're hoping this movement can happen. We've got to get kids back. And, uh, and the science indicates that um, it's not at all anything in the way of, of, of a concern to come back. And, um, and that's what we want to you know, get going going forward because of physical and mental health. We want to make sure it's done, being done properly. And, and don't forget, as a provincial sporting organization, there's 63 of us, we have to, and we have in place, very strict health and safety protocol to protect the participants, yeah. be it the players, the coaches, and officials on our fields of play. We've been using it since last year, and we follow that, and we have it in a very phased in approach. So this is not like we're asking that we return to pre-COVID and it's the wild, wild west. It's not that. We're just asking for the province to recognize that sport is important and we want to open it up so we can have more participants on our fields of play. Yeah, well, there's winners and losers being picked here and uh, kids for sure are becoming the big losers. I hope it works and I uh, continue to support it. So good luck and we'll keep following this. Yeah, thank you for that. And the other thing that, um, you know, that's underlined in all this is that the amateur sport system in our country and in Ontario is a great example of it. It's run by volunteers and run by an infrastructure that has it's a huge business on its own. And we can't forget that uh, it takes a global pandemic to expose how fragile we are economically, uh, because a lot of us depend on membership fees as a part of our economy of the sport, if you will. So what we're witnessing right now as well is the, the decay of the amateur sport infrastructure system. Yeah. And we have lots of organizations that are going under. Now, that's not at the expense of players. And players are yeah. number one but the actual system to support and put on programs, 
are shuttering and closing as we're speaking. So, yeah, decades to build and uh, it doesn't take yes. long for them to fold. So it, it, that is yet another bit of the collateral damage. Johnny, I appreciate your time on this. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. That is Johnny Misley with the Ontario Soccer Association. And, you know, look, lobbying seems to work with this government. So I hope they keep pushing and I hope they get this going because the kids need to get active. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.